Welcome to another edition of the Inside Scoop. My name is Neil Crawford and I'm your host and also the founder of Anytime Soccer Training. If you're not familiar with the Inside Scoop, it's a wonderful podcast dedicated to helping parents learn about the soccer pathways that would be available to their child if they lived in another city around the world. And it's turned on into a quite a cultural exchange that I've really enjoyed. And if you didn't check out the most recent episode, I encourage you to do so. We travel to Kampala, Uganda, and speak to a wonderful human being by the name of Emmy Grace, who founded his own nonprofit in order to give soccer opportunities to children in his community that are less fortunate. So definitely check out the Inside Scoop. We've been to Africa, Asia, um, Europe, and we're just going to travel the globe learning about youth soccer opportunities. If you're not familiar with, with Anytime Soccer Training, Anytime Soccer Training is a website that's dedicated to helping parents help their children own their own training. We do this by providing over 1,000 follow-along training videos that cover all the major areas of individual skill development. It's one of those things I think you'll really appreciate when you see it because you'll see how thorough it is in in terms of we have videos for juggling, 100% follow along, two cone dribbling, ball mastery, line cones, 1v1, um, essential turns, you name it. We're trying to make that content accessible for you. And guess what? It's just the cost is less than a dinner for two. So it's a it's a great tool to supplement what you're already doing at home. So now let's go on to the show. So today's show, I'm going to drop a tip, but again, it's not necessarily a quote-unquote actionable tip, but it should help our parent trainers think about um, ways to evaluate their own youth soccer clubs or the youth soccer clubs that they're interested in joining. And this is kind of part two of a podcast that I did last week where we kind of delved into what we look for in a youth soccer club. And as a matter of fact, um, the responses I got on that podcast from that podcast were great. And some of them were very, very helpful for my own um, development. And it also led me to realize that I didn't make a couple of things uh, crystal clear, or I wish I would have made a few things crystal clear. And I'm just going to take a moment of your time to clarify those. Now, in the previous podcast, I talked about two things. Number one, um, we reimagined whether or not clubs could be more effective if they were structured slightly different. And if you haven't um, listened to that podcast, I encourage you to do so because I'd be more than happy to get your opinion and your perspective on that part of the conversation. And the second piece of the podcast dealt with what I as a parent parent trainer recommend that other parents look for when screening a youth soccer club. And I effectively said it boils down to three metrics that I look for as sort of the first stage gate, if you will, in terms of evaluating a youth soccer club. So if I was at a game and I were looking at 10 youth soccer clubs, these are the three things I want to see. I'm going to rehash what we talked about in detail 
in the previous episode. So, so the number one thing I want to look, I want to see is that the club has the ability or that team has the ability to successfully connect at least five passes in the game or maybe a scrimmage situation. Again, I want to see if they can successfully and consistently connect five passes. Now, for some of you, this may sound strange because surely there's more to it than that. Or, or, and some people will say, well, you're talking about possession soccer and, and we may not, we may or may not play that style of play, right? And so that's not a good indicator. Well, in the previous show, I argued a couple of things. Number one, um, you know, soccer is a game of keep away and and in order to just move the ball, a fundamental thing that a team needs to be able to do, irrespective of their style of play, is connect at least five passes. And I also went on to say, and that's not necessarily a um, possession thing, that's just how you play the game of soccer. And finally, the reason that's a good screener is because in order for you soccer players, and we're talking about that competitive level, U8 and above, in order for them to consistently connect five passes with um, opposition, there's a lot of good stuff that needs to be happening Monday through Friday within the training pitch. So that's just an indicator that says if they're able to accomplish this goal in the game, there's so many other things that the club has to be getting right in terms of teaching, learning, and development on the soccer pitch. So then the next thing I look at is when the players receive the ball, do they instinctively check up and look around for their and, and evaluate their surroundings? And we're not just talking about those few superstar players who maybe have parents who are actively engaged or the coach's child or players who get a lot of extra training on their own. We're talking about the entire team because if you get players of various skill levels to in to do something that's not intuitive, which is check up and look at their surroundings, be calm enough to check up and look for their surroundings, that's a very good indicator in combination with the fact that they're able to, to um, connect at least five passes. That's a very good indicator that there's a lot of good stuff happening uh, on the training pitch. For example, even your quote-unquote weakest link, the coaches would have had to take a lot of care in making sure that the passing sequence didn't fall down when they got to that particular player. And finally, the thing I look at um, as a bonus is when out of possession, do the kids try to get back into some shape? Do they hustle to get back in some to some shape? Because that's a good sign that um, there's a culture there of hard work, discipline, and commitment to the team. Because it's, it takes a lot of energy to constantly get back into shape out of possession. So those are the things that I look for when I initially screen. But when I receive the feedback um, on that particular podcast, again, if you haven't listened to Reimagining Youth um, Soccer Clubs, I encourage you to do so. It became clear to me that I that I was misleading in two ways. In reality, no, I don't go with a clipboard and and evaluate ten different teams that my son could potentially be a part of. No, that's not how it works in practice. 
the way it actually works in practice is I just check in when I'm watching a game to see if this is if my son's team is doing this and they're always getting the checking up part down right because I just watched them for so long so I'm really looking at my son and looking at the other players seeing if they're getting back on defense and if they're progressing in terms of being able to connect at least five passes and because I'm watching my son's team's team every weekend I obviously know when they're playing really competitive teams and that may break down and I know when they're playing slightly easier teams but the interesting thing is they play and this is for better or worse they play a similar style regardless of the level of competition so when they're playing a quote-unquote easier team that passing will probably go up to eight or nine on average and when they're playing a really hard team it'll be below the five and so but they're constantly trying to do it and i think that's when you get into quote-unquote winning versus development because they're trying to make these passes in relatively dangerous dangerous places and then another way i sort of use this screening tool is quite often because of what i do in terms of anytime soccer training and the clinics and the podcasts and the blogs and all that stuff parents in the local area will ask me my opinion on on different soccer clubs and quite frankly you know I, I typically have two two opinions one i offer readily and one you know i offer sometimes so a lot of that stuff depends on the coach so you know no matter how big or good the club is in theory you know it really depends on the interactions with that coach and, and your child and then assuming that is good, and we're going to talk about that in a second, but assuming that's good and, and meets your standards, then if the parent seems interesting, interested, then I would tell them my um, screening tool. And on the sidelines with a few of my parent trainer friends, when I share this screening tool of can they connect five passes, are they checking up, and are they getting back on defense, it simplifies everything and it gives us sort of a way of communicating with each other about how the team is playing. And it's quite illuminating to parents who've never thought about it that way. So that's why I wanted to share with you guys and, and I appreciate any feedback there. Now to the other misconception, listen, I, I alluded to this, but I didn't make it crystal clear. There are a zillion things that you as a parent should be evaluating on what before you place your child in, in someone else's care. And I didn't make that crystal clear Many of those things are personal, but I do feel like some of them, um, there's some insight that we can gain. And, and, and to that point, there was a coach in our Facebook group who succinctly laid out four things that he would look for. And I thought these were so great and a little different than what I was uh, talking about that I'm just going to read them out and then give you feedback on how I interpreted it. So the first thing he said was the coach's interactions with players the referees, opposing coaches, and parents before, during, and after the game. And it was the before, during, and after the game that really stuck with me. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. One time I took my son to a to a game in a city that will remain nameless. And his club requires them to drop his club requires that we drop though his kids, our kids off. 90 minutes before his game. And I'm going to get into why they do that and how, what impact that has on the culture of the club. But the bottom line is we got to be there 90 minutes before the game and drop our kids off. So I'm rushing. I drop my son off to make sure that he's at the pregame stuff before on time because he gives me a hard time if he's, if he's running late. 
And then I jotted off and went to McDonald's and got a sandwich and some coffee. And while I was there, I saw another coach just out of the corner of my eye um, doing the same thing. Well, when I went back to the field to get ready to watch my son play, I noticed that one of my friends was doing the warm up for his son's team who was playing my son's team. And, you know, this is my buddy. So I was kind of joking with him, like, why in the world are you doing the warm up? Right. And then he explained, oh, our coach got lost on his way. And I said, "Okay, that's that's a bit unfortunate. And then um, the coach arrived. And when the coach arrived, I noticed that, oh, that was the same coach that was just at McDonald's with me. And so when not to confuse the matter, when the coach on Facebook posted, you know, he looks at or he would look at what they do before the game. I was like, yeah, that's a good indicator because we're asking our kids for 110 percent. So we as adults have to give 110%. And this podcast is not about bashing any coach. I mean, there's a legitimate reasons why that, that complex was massive, why someone may get twisted around, and I'm sure it was a, a one-off. But it just spoke to me to say, you know what? What are they doing before the game? Are they completely locked in? Completely locked in and are, are they showing a, a level of professionalism that we will that we will hope that our kids will not necessarily understand but we'll model. So that was, that was pretty good. And then, and then after the game, we want to look at those coaches behaviors, whether they win, lose or draw. And I don't think I have to tell you guys that we've seen some variation of positive to negative in all those situations. And then um, he mentioned number two is a player's interactions with each other and their body language. Do they enjoy the team? And I tell you, my son loves uh, his team and he loves his teammates. And that's one of the things I love about a small club. But because I trained so many kids, I have seen situations where the kids just don't get along. And that may change with my son's um, teams and teammates as they get older. He's still pretty young. But I've seen that situation. So as a parent, we really need to be um, paying a close attention to that. Then he went on to say parents' behaviors on the sidelines. Now, we're always going to have um, some bad apples. I wish we could get rid of all the rotten apples, but that's just not going to happen. And quite frankly, you know, it's, it's a long season, so parents are allowed to make a mistake occasionally as well. But if you have a situation where, the you know, a considerable amount of pa- parents are just coaching and yelling and misbehaving on the sidelines that can speak to a broader cultural issue that the club has not failed to address. So if I was looking at moving to another club, I would definitely pay close attention to that may not may or may not be a deal breaker because we are in America and we know how our parents can be, but it's definitely something that I would keep a close eye on. And then he went on to say the quality of the players. Do the players currently have abilities that would challenge but not overwhelm your child? And I think that's important, right? So you you definitely want your child to have some success on the field, um, but you don't. You also want them to be challenged. But at the same time, you don't want to destroy them mentally or make the game unfun by putting them in an environment that they're not prepared to handle. And I thought that was a very measured way of putting it. So those are four tips that a a fellow, well, not fellow coach. I don't really consider myself a coach in that regard, but a coach gave us on the Facebook group that I thought was so 
good that I just wanted to share it for the other parent trainers who may be listening. Now we're going to go to the meat and potatoes of this show. Okay. Now you have to, you, some of you'll know this, some of you won't. Um, I actually never, I didn't grow up playing soccer. Not only did I not grow up playing soccer and not grow up watching soccer, I didn't even know we had a high school soccer team until our yearbook came out and I saw my friend happen to play on the team. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. And I think we got like one-tenth of a page. They got one-tenth of a page and the rest of it was the football team But because I grew up in rural South Carolina. And I fell in love with um, youth soccer when I got to London and then I fell even more in love with it when my boys took a liking to it. And I tried to, I'm trying to instill some of that passion I have for the game in them. And I had to ramp up my knowledge of the game uh, through the lens of working with my sons because I just didn't grow up playing. And if you're like me and you're listening and you, um, either, if, whether you have experience in the game or you don't, there's two things that you often hear um, in the soccer space that I'm going to share with you. And then I'm going to just sort of give you my opinion on 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 this uh, for public consumption and also from the perspective of an outsider who had to deconstruct this stuff and learn it in more layman terms for myself. Okay, so whenever you're listening to folks talk about youth soccer, you're going you're gonna to always hear them talk about um, development and the importance of development. I think that's a right place to start, and then no argument there. I think if you're going to put your child in these competitive environments, one of the things you want to get out of that is that they are developed, however you want to interpret it, but they are being developed as a soccer player. And then another thing you hear right after that, another thing that's very common to hear is your club's philosophy. And for years, this just stumped me and I would, I would read about it and try to understand it. But we've talked about this on this podcast. A lot of the information that we as parent trainers have to consume is, if I'm being polite, is written for an audience who has a good base of knowledge. And so they make a lot of assumptions, and, and in my opinion, they don't really go into a lot of details in explaining it to someone who has no knowledge, no understanding of what they're talking about. And it's sort of like in a, in a former life, um, my wife got me to sign up for some, uh, some salsa lessons. And uh, the first thing I explained to the, because I think the salsa teacher was kind of showing us some moves and my wife is a little bit better at this than me and I was trying trying to follow and I had to explain to the teacher I said listen I know more about not knowing how to dance salsa than you will ever know about teaching salsa and that was a f- funny way of saying you got to go to night school on me we got to go step by step which is part of the inspiration of uh anytime soccer training by the way and so we really need to break this down and you need to teach me how to dance salsa from the perspective of somebody who doesn't know how to dance at all. Right. And so once we got on that level, then, you know, I was able to pick up some of the basics. Well, that's the way I'm going to give you my interpretation of and we're just going to stick with a club's philosophy. And then I'm going to talk to you about why I think it's important to understand this concept and how you can use this concept to start slowly introducing these concepts to your child if 
they're not receiving them for whatever reason in the way you think they could be receiving them in their club environment. So first, let's define what I believe a club philosophy is. In its most basic terms, a club's philosophy is how that club or that coach believes the game ought to be played. How they think the game should be played. And that's a very general statement and even that was kind of hard for me to that took me a while to learn what that actually meant at least in my opinion and then it took me a while to learn what that meant in the context of youth soccer and how I could apply that to my own children all right so now we now we've established now why is it important to understand what a club's philosophy is well, it's important and it's not important. The reason it's important is because if you understand what your how you think, how that club, the club that your son plays for or your daughter plays for, if you understand how they think the game should be played and you have access to the games, which you will, and practices, which you will in most cases, then you're going to have a much better appreciation with how the club is arranging its trainings and what they're trying to teach your child. It's no different if, if you send your child to a magnet school that's based on um, STEM, then you're going to have a really good appreciation for the curriculum. You're going to be able to say, okay, I know now what they're going to focus on. If you send them to a magnet school that deal, deals with drama and, and dance, then you're going to have a good idea of what that curriculum looks like. So if you don't understand the club's philosophy or they haven't made that club, that philosophy clear to you in very tangible and relatable terms, then you're effectively sending them to a STEM school that you, and it may be good, but you don't even understand why do we have so many engineering classes? Because they, you just didn't know it was a STEM school. So that's why it's important because it can help you understand what they're doing, why they're teaching it, what they're trying to teach your child. And then, you know, in an ideal situation, you can kind of hold them accountable, not necessarily getting them to change their behavior, but by moving, by, you know, leaving with your dollars. So if they're not, if they have this philosophy and then you don't see that philosophy starting to manifest itself over time in the games, in the scrimmages, in the way they train, in the development of the children around your child, then that's a good sign that, hey, okay, they're not living up to what they believe should be happening. But if you don't know what their philosophy is, then it's hard to know, am I, again, using the school example, you know, why am I, you would never ask the STEM school, why am I only taking one engineer engineering class if you didn't know it was a STEM school? Okay, so that's why it may be important. The reason it probably not, is not that important at the youth level, especially, is because, you know, based on those comments that I told you earlier about the things that you should look for in a club outside of the, you know, soccer stuff, those things are so much more important than what I'm telling you now. So if the kid is having fun, they look and they enjoy their teammates, they're inspired by their coach, the coach brings a level of professionalism. If they're doing all that stuff right, you know, unless you're in the 1% that's really trying to create a pro 
kid and, and this is that serious to you, then I think your child is going to be all right in most environments. If you're if you're if you're getting that stuff right, then the soccer to me is kind of secondary. All right. So that's why it so I've kind of gone over why it's important and and why it may not be that important. So now I am going to break down how I think about a um, club's philosophy. And the reason I'm kind of laughing to myself is because I probably my coaches and my trainers are and club directors are looking, probably listening like, yeah, I can see why this guy began by saying he's never played soccer. So I'm putting this out here for public consumption so I can get you guys' feedback. So this is how I think about a club's philosophy. And if I were able to talk to a coach, which is normally not the case, but if I'm able to talk to my son's coach and I'm able to try to understand what their club's philosophy is and I want to get past all the marketing and doublespeak, these are the types of questions I would ask them. And again, just as a reminder, this these questions are under the umbrella of how that coach or how that club thinks the game should be played. So, again, if I were going to ask the coach a couple of questions, I would say, OK, we just watched this game. When my son has the ball, what are some of the things you think should be going through his head? Like what should my son is in possession? What should he be thinking? Okay, that that would be a question. And then that question then starts depending on where the child is on the pitch. And so we can start dividing the pitch up into sections. And I'll talk about that in a second. Another question might be when we're out of possession. No, sorry, not when we're out of possession. When we're in possession, but my son does not have the ball, what should be going through his head? What should he be thinking? We have the ball, but he's not in possession. What should he be thinking? And then I would be very interested in hearing the coach's response to that. And again, that is very multidimensional, right? So it's where are we on the pitch? What's the score? All these things you can layer on. But I believe that, you know, an adult should have a view. You're not limiting the choices. So I don't want all my decision-making um, hawks out there to jump on me. I'm not limiting. I'm just saying, what are some of the things that they should be thinking about in these situations? When we are in transition, so there's three main phases of play. Some will argue some others, but there's some three, three or four main phases of play, in possession, out of possession. And when we're in transition, so we had the ball and we lost the ball, what should he be thinking? And when we're in transition where we didn't have the ball, we dispossessed, now we have the ball, what should be in what should be going on in, in my child's head? And then and then as a team, as a unit, what should we be thinking? What are we trying to accomplish as a unit? So if I had an opportunity to interview my team's coach, and they don't normally engage in this type of conversation with the with us crazy parents. And this is the type of thing I'm going to invite a coach on to talk to me about on the podcast. What should be going on in their heads? Now, because this is not something early on that I saw was actually happening. Again, no, no criticism for the coaches, because as a matter of fact, I probably jumped the gun and explained some things to my son earlier than I should have. But because I um, didn't see this stuff happening. 
at the end for the parent trainers, I'm going to explain to you how I explain this stuff to my sons. And I'm going to explain to you how I explain it to my rec players. So that's in a nutshell what philosophy is to me when we are in these different phases of play, when we are in different parts of the field, when we're in possession, out of possession, on the ball, off the ball, what is if I could hit time out and and freeze everybody, which is what I do what I do often in practice, and ask the player, what are you seeing? What are you thinking? What are you trying to accomplish? Their answer in my opinion, should be in the realm of what we're trying to do as a club philosophy. Okay, so that's enough of that. So now I'm going to talk to you about how I deliver this in my my philosophy to my younger son's recreational team. And then I'm going to explain how I deliver my philosophy as an individual from a excuse me, from an individual perspective to my older son. Okay. So I don't, I don't want the show to be like three hours. So I don't explain it to the U7, U8, my son's U7, now U8 recreational team like this, but I'm going to explain it to you so you can picture it. But, but what I'm explaining to you happens throughout the whole season. So, at that age, the first thing I need them to understand is we got two sides of the pitch. We got an offensive side and a defensive side. And then that pitch is split into three areas or channels, the middle and the two wide areas. So that's what they need to understand. The pitch is divided offensively and defensively. And then from a latitude perspective, it's three channels. You either in the, you're either in the middle or you're in one of the two wide positions. So that's the first thing I need them to start getting their heads around. So the first week, and again, that's what I'm saying. I deliver this, these concepts to them throughout the entire year. The first week of practice, all I need to, them to understand is are they on defense, on the defensive side, on the offensive side, and we kind of get into the wide positions. So my overarching philosophy is, and again, my knowledge is limited to what the the, the age of my boy. So when they're U17, I have a podcast about my philosophy at that point, but this is U7, U8, U9, U10. So anyways, my philosophy for that one is, for that young age is, we want to get the ball in attack. We want to get the ball very wide to create space, right? And then um, and then we want to do one-twos through the middle, back out wide, and we want to attack from wide positions. That's the bottom line. So we really want to start our attack from wide positions, and we want our players to, to really expand the field to move the defense backwards and forwards not backwards, but sideways, side to side. And then that's going to create the space for us to then, you know, when we get into the quote unquote final third for us to, to attack. Right. And so I set up all of these drills to reinforce getting the ball wide and then attacking from wide positions and, and being able to connect one or two passes in that way. So, that's effectively how I deliver the first building blocks of my 
own personal soccer and how I think the game should be played to my U6, U7, U8s. So then when we do all the, when I do all the ball mastery stuff and making sure the kids are on the ball, you know, all of that, yes, we're doing that because it's important that they get these skills, but they're really acquiring these skills. I mean, in theory, you know, not that heavy on a, in a wreck situation, but in theory, they're acquiring these, acquiring these skills so that they can successfully execute the way I think the game should be played. So you're, you're learning how to pass because I need you to be able to get the ball wide and accurate. You're learning how to dribble because I need you to be able to attack in the final third or move or escape pressure. Again, you're learning how to move because of these rules. And so I'm going to say something that's extremely controversial. And then we'll go on to the advice I give to my older one as an individual. I'm going to tell you something that's extremely controversial. In the first few games, I limit the amount of choices that my rec players have. I'm like, listen, when you receive the ball, you must pass it to the defender. And then when you pass the ball to the defender, you must get wide if you're a wide player. Like, so we, you know, you know how it's set up. I think it's like a 5v5, maybe 6v6. But there's always this, like, defender in the back. You must pass it to the defender. You must turn around, pass it to the defender, and then you must immediately get wide. And then that defender has a choice. They can pass it wide to the left or they pass it wide to the um, right. And then that's how we start our offense. And that's how we start our attack. And I actually don't give them a lot of choices. I'm really... Like, listen, when you touch the ball, the first thing I need you to do is turn around, get it back to the defender and get wide. And that defender is going to get it to one of these two people. And then we set up drills throughout the weeks, working on that, working on that, working on that. And then once they understand that concept and we have that cemented, slowly I start giving them more and more freedom to evaluate and do it, do things on their own. So that's kind of how I implement my philosophy at the rec level. And there's a whole host of stuff I do over the 10-week program that then by the end of it, the other parents, and I got to toot my own horn on this, and the other coaches are like, wow, how, how, are you able to, how are you able to get them to do this and that? And I, you know, my tip, if you're a rec coach, is actually limit their choices at first and then slowly, slowly as they acquire certain skills, give them more and more choices. And that's kind of worked for my um for my teams and I think the kids have benefited from them and that's not to negate the fact that you know 80% of the practice is on the ball but these are those few technical drills that not technical tactical drills that we do to reinforce my own personal um philosophy now as it goes to my older son and the parent trainer tip and how I communicated this philosophy to him. So here's the mistake I made. So it's kind of a mistake I made because I promise I will talk about mistakes I've made and then how it led to me thinking about, boy, how do I communicate this stuff to my son? So the mistake I made was talking to my son about the game in the car. And you hear that often and many people say they don't do it. And I, and I think that's true. But some of us are guilty of doing it. And early on, I definitely was guilty of doing it. Good thing is I didn't really 
badger him about it, but I would just talk to him about the game and what I was seeing and where I think he could improve. And, you know, it doesn't take a rocket science to learn that that's just not the right thing to do. But my son in this particular team, he used to play on the wing a lot. And what he would do, and we've all seen this, he would get the ball on the wing and he would just dribble down the, the wing left or right as fast as he could. Almost until, and if he couldn't beat the player with speed, and and then he was good enough to at least try to do a cross eventually, he would just run out of real estate and he would just dribble as fast as he could. And, you know, I asked him, I said, Well, why don't you look inside to make a pass and then they can give you the ball back and all that kind of stuff, you know, the typical one two stuff. And it dawned on me during that conversation, which I shouldn't have been having in the car in the first place. But it dawned on me that he actually didn't know what a wing player's role is, or at least what, in general, a a player who's on the wing should be thinking about. And I'm going to pause for a second, and this may irritate some of my coaches and more experienced soccer professionals out there. I actually think there's some general principles that are borderline universal um, in youth soccer. There's some general principles that are borderline universal. And those are the general principles that I then taught him and then I worked with him on the track practice pitch to reinforce. And I taught my son this basic algorithm that is in concert or in line with my overall philosophy on how I think the game should be played. And I did that in response to the fact this is, you probably have a view on this. I feel like a horrible parent, but I did this in response to the fact that I didn't feel like the coach or the club of this particular team had a defined philosophy. So the kids were just kind of doing everything. And and in retrospect, they may be purpose to the madness. If I'm not being cynical, if I'm just, maybe they felt like that wasn't the time to teach it. And it just, you didn't want to layer too much onto the kids, but for whatever reason, He didn't understand what he was supposed to be doing, so I stepped in and gave him some of this information. And as a non-soccer player and as a management accountant, as I've talked about it a lot, I had to think about how can I explain it to him in a way that was easy for him to digest. And I came up with this very simple algorithm, and then we practiced this a lot in the backyard. And it was simple. At first, I just explained, hey, the field is broken into three channels center wide in two wide two wide channels in the center if you get the ball in the in the center in the middle of the pitch 95 percent of the time your you should be looking the best option for you whether you're dribbling it or passing it is to get the ball back wide that will serve you very well in your soccer career you receive the ball in the middle, either you dribble wide or you pass the ball wide. We're not going to get into, you know, the decision portion of that, but just know that. And then, and then if there's no space in front of you or you can't take the guy on or girl on one-on-one, you have a safety valve behind you. You, The other 5%, you probably can turn around and pass it back. Okay, so that was the simple algorithm if you receive the ball in the, in the middle. And 
if you receive the ball while you're in a wide position, 99, 95% of the time, your best option when you is to get the ball back to the middle. Okay, some kind of way. And, and getting the ball back to the middle will look a little different in different areas of the pitch. So if you're in your final third, it may look like a cross. If you're in your back, you know, in the back third in your defensive half, it may look like a one-two where you pass it to your um, center center midfielder or your defensive um back and then that person passes it right back to you to create space but the bottom line is if you receive the ball wide you're probably trying to get it back to the middle if you receive the ball in the middle you're probably trying to get it back wide and so you're forming these triangles and zigzag pattern formations and and then if people if players do not close you down then you you know you push forward you have to use your own judgment and what I explained to my son is I can't tell you and I won't tell you how to actually play the game. You have to evaluate all of this information in a split second. But I am telling you that, you know, chances are if you get the ball in the middle, the space is going to be wide. And then I'm probably not doing a great job of explaining this. I wrote a blog post about it and I'll share on my podcast as well. Because I'm leaving out the part of, you know, at the end of the day, what you're really trying to do as an offensive player is get the ball into space. And if you receive the ball in the middle, more than likely in the high 90 percentile, the space is going to be wide. And if you receive the ball wide, more than likely the space is going to be in the middle. And if they don't close down the space in front of you, then you push up until you put pressure on them. And then you always should have space behind you. And that is in line with my philosophy. And I'll tell you what, as a parent trainer, once I got my son or once my son understood that, he instantly looked like Kevin De Bruyne out there. I mean, people were just amazed. They were just starstruck at how well he passed at such a young age. And it was just me simply explaining to him, these are probably your, these are the most likely options and you should kind of favor those until you get more and more experience. And that's, I didn't go into that level of detail, but that's effectively what I, what I did. And another reason I did that as a parent trainer is because you have to remember within the soccer establishment, the people who are evaluating your child and evaluating their potential, again, is no judgment. They're going to look at what they perceive to be your child's soccer IQ. So if you have a U8 player, my sons watch the game, so they kind of, they have that advantage over, I guess, kids who don't, but so they have some awareness. But if you have a U7, U8 player who receives the ball in the middle and there are two or three kids around them and they don't just put their head down and try to dribble forward, instead, they get the ball wide uh, again really quickly or they get the ball wide on the other side and they swing it. You know, for for whatever, just from pure selfish reasons, the other coaches and the other players and the other parents, they're going to hold your child up in, in high esteem. And I think that then slowly starts building your child's confidence. And that's what happened with mine. Now, once he got a little bit um, older, 
I then explained that the field is no longer broken down into your offensive side and defensive side. Now you have four, I guess you'd say, horizontal. Maybe I should draw it out. Channels going across the field. So you got the three channels going down the field, but now the field is broken down into four other sections. It's the middle of the field, because now the field is larger because you guys have gone to, I think, 9v9 or something like that. Then you have your offensive and defensive thirds, right? So, and then you have your offensive half and your defensive half. And I should be, you know, I should be expecting different behaviors. And, and this may get a little detailed, so I hope you're able to follow me. But what would happen, what my son would do once he got a little older is when he got into his offensive half, he treated that part of the pitch. He would, he would make a pass wide, but he would try to go for the gusto, get the perfect pass to put his team in a scoring position as soon as they pass the halfway line. And I then had to teach him, no, there, you know, the, the defenders are getting better, so they're not going to allow you to do that. So now you got to be thinking about making connections with your other little teammates, shorter passes, safer passes, because you need, now are going to need to string together two or three more passes to break down the defenders. And that's probably above and beyond the call of duty. But I wanted to share that with you to say, hey, that's my soccer knowledge to date. And that's sort of where, where I'm at and sort of how I explain it to my boys and how I explain it to my team. And that's from an offensive perspective. I have some defensive um, things I share with them, and I'll probably share it in another podcast that helps the team and also helps my son individually and something that he's working on. So in summary, from a person from the outside looking in, I think it's important in some respects and and not important in other respects for you as the parent to understand what your club's philosophy is. And 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 in its most basic terms, a club's philosophy is how they think the game should be played. And if I could wave a magic wand or if I was creating the perfect soccer club, I would have a meeting with the parents and the coaches and the players and go over in detail how I think if I was the director of the club, the the game should be played and how that works itself out in on the training pitch and what we are expecting to see in the games. And you as parents and players and coaches should hold us all accountable to that stuff that philosophy. So that's that's why it should kind of be important. The reason it's not important again is because if your kid is in a nurturing environment where they're, you know, having some decent training and and they're happy and they're around their friends, you know, nobody you know, nobody gives their MVP speech or their valedictorian speech and says, "Boy, I'm glad you put me in an environment with a good unified club philosophy that really made a difference in my life." So really focus on those other things. This is just one parent trainer's perspective and we're kind of getting in the weeds there. And then as it pertains to my 
teams. I explain that philosophy. I'm not going to go over that, but just to summarize, I explain my philosophy of getting wide, playing through the channels, what you should be doing offensively, when in attack, when on possession, and and when you're out of possession, I'm not out of possession, but off the ball. So off the ball, you should be getting wide and inspecting your pass, opening up. When you have the ball, you should be checking up and trying to get the ball wide and inspecting the pass back to the middle. That's how I explain it basically to my rec players and then when we out of possession we starting to get compact on defense and over a 10-week season you know um no we're not as skillful as the you know club players obviously but i do believe that we have a soccer iq that's on par with kids who have many 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 more contact hours and folks will have a view on whether or not this is the best age appropriate time to deliver this content and that's the feedback that I want to get to help me in my own um, sort of soccer journey and development. And then finally, the way I, I did a simple little algorithm with my older son, because he was talented enough, because I worked with him a lot on the ball, to be able to execute this. So I knew he was able to do that, but he didn't have the soccer IQ at the time that I felt like he should have had at his age. So if you get the ball in the middle... 90% of the time, you should be looking wide. Either you're dribbling wide or you are you pushing the ball wide. If you run into trouble, you can also always turn around and, and pass it back. That sped up his decision-making process, and he looked like Kevin De Bruyne out there, and folks didn't, folks didn't understand why he was able to make such quick decisions, but it was because we worked on that algorithm so much in the backyard that he received the ball and he knew. Then as he... Um, graduated from that i introduced two more things one i forgot to mention and one i did which is okay now you receive the ball in the middle 95 if 90 percent of the time is wide probably 95 percent of the time the space is wide in the opposite direction so if you can pivot and check over your shoulder and get the ball wide in the other part of the field because now the field is bigger you're going to give your wing player um a lot of space to to work with and then you're filling the middle of the channel and more than like you'll get that ball back and you guys can do a one two and this stuff kind of happens naturally but that was the second thing um, i worked on him a lot with so when we look at training drills and applying what you learn on the training pitch to in the game that's sort of the lessons that i'm teaching him on the training pitch and then i just sit back and see if he's able to do it on the soccer field and remember this can take a year this is not like i just told him this and then he started doing it this is a year practicing this stuff in the backyard and then him seeing the results on the pitch and then it and then it um and then he getting the positive feedback and then as a selfish as a very very selfish parent trainer if you can get your child to make the right decisions before the other kids can it does a couple of things. They are individually held in high high esteem. They're respected by their teammates even more. And then your team actually holds possession even longer, which we'll get into in another podcast, but that's also um, helpful. And finally, I talked about we break, you know, for my older one, we broke the field down into a horizontally in three areas. Well, then that, that turns into four areas. You know, your final thirds, defensive, and I call it final thirds. It's not really final fourths or whatever. Defensive and attacking positions. And I'm expecting certain things there. So when I hear parents say, I, you know, I want my kids to be creative and I want them to 1v1 and that's important. That is obviously true. But, you know, at least for my son, he's understanding that 
within the context of the situation. Uh, so his 1v1 in, in his defensive half is going to look a little different than his 1v1 in front of goal. And now what I'm teaching him is the middle of the field, now it's has a defensive and attacking positions that you need to connect a little bit more before you can effectively go for the gusto. And that's no different than, I guess, in using a basketball term, you wouldn't shoot a 30-foot jumper every single time. And that's effectively what he was trying to do. Make one pass, cross into the offensive half, makes make one pass and expect the player to be able to create a chance from there. Now you got to be able to connect some easier passes and, and build up to that attacking third and put pressure on the defense. So we went a little bit in the weeds there. Not a very specific advice, but something I had on my mind that I wanted to put in public um, out there for public consumption because I want my parent, I'm mean, not my parent, my coaches and my trainers to listen to this and my club directors have a couple of coaches in mind that I really want to hear and so that I can then invite them onto the show and give us the real deal from folks who actually have studied this stuff and not a rambling wannabe parent trainer coach um, by the name of Neil Crawford, also the founder of Anytime Soccer Training. So I hope you enjoyed this. And again, if you haven't checked out the Anytime Soccer Training, I encourage you to do that at anytime-soccer.com. Check out the free content. We we put a lot of work into making this something that um, is really helpful for your child. And we're pricing it to be less than a dinner for two for families who don't have all the resources to get that as much individual training as they deserve. So again, let's get better together and thank you very much for listening.